You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, I'm in the new HQ, down on the waterfront. I misstate that one time during the podcast. And I'm here in the studio with Dr. Cliff Huddis, who's the CEO of ASCO and former Section Chief of Breast Oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Dr. Huddis and I had a wide-ranging discussion about many issues. I hope you find it of interest. I'm going to cut right to it. Stay tuned for later this week when I'm going to take a deep dive into precision oncology in a forthcoming episode. But for now, the interview with Dr. Huddis. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience, and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate. And if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally, if you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. All right, I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Cliff Huddis. Dr. Huddis is CEO of ASCO, and prior to that, he was the Chief of Breast Oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering, a role he held from 1998 to 2016. He has been at ASCO just the last few years and leads the organization. Dr. Huddis, thanks so much for coming here to Plenary Session HQ. It's a treat to join you here. Thank you. <laughs> we were just talking before we started about um, how, how spacious this office is I've been given here, uh, right here on the Hill. I think um, many of your fans might be surprised at the massive amount of square footage that you occupy. <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, what, what we are given, we make the most of here on Plenary Session HQ. I have my closet to your left. Uh, I have my, uh, my uh, futon to your right. Uh, it's pretty much everything you need. To... <laughs> Let me just say for anybody who hasn't been here, this makes a New York studio look spacious. <laughs> Uh, yes, I think that that's accurate. Well, Dr. Hardis, thanks so much for coming here. So you, we have you here in person on the West Coast, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come here. I think our listeners are going to be very excited to hear from you. Um, you know, we've been talking the last couple couple hours over, over lunch and, and with some colleagues, um, but I thought I'd just jump right in. So, you know, one of the people who, one of the groups who listens to this podcast quite frequently are trainees who are pursuing careers in hematology oncology. I'm wondering if you'd take us back to that time, you know, 1987, 1988, when you were starting out as a fellow at Sloan Kettering. Um, what was it that drew you to oncology, and what was it that uh, that made you go to Sloan Kettering, and and uh, and how did you navigate that transition? I'm going to go a little further back to okay. start with. I had the good fortune, I think, to grow up in the 1960s. And what happened in America in the 1960s is that the country made a fairly concerted investment in science and math education. Mm -hmm. And even in a public school system in a big city, I think we were able to benefit from that. So I got interested in science and technology, in a sense, early because of public education mm -hmm. and, and what was happening. This was fueled by the Cold War. Of course, it all started with uh, mm -hmm. essentially Sputnik and mm -hmm. the fears that mm -hmm. followed, but, but the point is, mm -hmm. there we were. And um, the second thing is that early on, 
Um, either I knew I wanted to be a physician or my parents programmed me that way. It's a little <laughs> hard to tease that apart uh -huh. at this point. Uh, but so it was. And I ended up in a six-year BAMD program. And when I was accepted into that program in high school, um, from my parents' point of view, uh, there were two years of education no longer needed, and the financial benefit alone was enough to say I had no choice. Uh -huh. so, it, it was mission accomplished. Yeah, well, <laughs> at least the launch had started. A launch had started. Uh -huh. And so I did that, and the point, though, is I ended up in and then through my internal medicine residency still at a relatively young age. It's not extraordinary. The European education system isn't so different from that. Correct. And many of our colleagues have been through six- and seven-year, and there even were, I think, five-year programs at some places but I was young. Mm -hmm. As I was going through training in, a, um, in, a, in an under-resourced environment, inner city, one thing that happened to me among many is that the oncology clinic was one of the first places where I saw, uh, maybe just by luck, very engaged patients listening to, following the advice that they're clinicians gave them, coming back week after week. Mm -hmm. And the contrast for me, frankly, from training was the clinics for high blood pressure and diabetes patients where no matter what we seem to say, the weeks went by and very little follow-through happened. I've learned, of course, mm -hmm. that I was blind to a host of social challenges, I'm sure, mm -hmm. uh, at the time. But nonetheless, my experience was that the oncology clinic was actually warm and engaging. The second thing was, mm -hmm. it was early in the modern era of oncology. After all, it was just the mid-60s when ASCO started. Mm -hmm. It was really in the 70s when boards for oncology became uh, a reality. Mm -hmm. And so the drugs that we had at the time could be listed on two sides of a piece of paper, mm -hmm. actually, almost mm -hmm. all of them. But the future was bright. and so. The last little part of this long story I'll say, which is a, a peculiar thing, is that in, I think, 1971 or two, somewhere in there, the, there was an ABC telemovie about the life of Brian Piccolo. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Brian had become Football Ill. player. Football player, right. Uh -huh. And ultimately was treated um, for cancer. Mm -hmm. And where was he treated? He was treated at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So in my, um, from my background, that was the light on the hill. That was the place to go. So as I came out of my residency program and knew that I w wanted to be an oncologist, of course, I had my uh, uh, sights set on, on going to New York and going to Memorial. Did you grow up in New York City? No, I grew oh. up in Philadelphia. I see. I see. Not far away, though. And you did your BA and MD in, in the state of Pennsylvania. Exactly. I went to Lehigh University for two years. And as an interesting aside, what had been the Women's Medical College, the Medical College of Pennsylvania, now Drexel, mm -hmm. um, that's where I went. And, and the interesting aside is that that institution, of course, had a majority of students who were women, even when I went. Hmm. And in the decades before, it was responsible for a large proportion of American physicians who were women. Mm -hmm. And the leadership was, I don't know if it was equitable exactly, I don't remember, but it wasn't notable one way or the other. I see. And so when I left there uh -huh. and I encountered the still very male world of leadership in yeah. academic medicine, I actually had a little bit of a rude awakening. Wow. So it was ahead of the curve in terms of gender balance uh, at, at this university. And... Um, 
Um, I think, uh, and nowadays, of course, the majority nationally of uh, of uh, medical students are women. So that's been, uh, you know, what had started there has is really spread out throughout the country. Yeah, I mean, it was just it's just an interesting point because what happened. I think the story is that they had to take men because of the federal subsidies for medical education. I see. Uh-huh. And so, so ironically, that happened. And um, but but at any rate, um, it, it it was it was a part of history. It was a great story. The, the institution was founded in 1856. Mm-hmm. Uh, to teach women uh, medicine. And as I said, I think it became co-ed around 1969. I see. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I was there 15 years later. 15 years but, the- but there was still a lot of that legacy. And anyway, Drexel University, I think, carries that on now. Mm. And then you went to your internal medicine residency at, in New York City. No, I did internal medicine at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. I so see. I was there for eight years. Eight years, okay. Because I also was a chief medical resident. I see. And then the year before you started at Sloan, you're telling me you, you ran an emergency room. Right. So I needed a job for the year. This is one of those little bits of advice if I had it to do over again. I was not mentored the same way in, then that, that I would like to see somebody mentored now. Mm-hmm. If I knew better, if I had a directed career, um, I would have spent that year for sure in something related to my career. I would have gone into a lab. I would have learned some uh, molecular biology. I would have learned some public health, something related to cancer. Mm -hmm. But instead, I had no real mentoring. I had the fellowship acceptance. I had a gap year, and uh, I needed to make a living. Um, And so I took a job in in the emergency room at Mount Sinai. I see. But then, so what were the attributes that got you into Sloan Kettering? Because I think even in the late 1980s, Sloan Kettering was already becoming, obviously, a very competitive fellowship. DeVita was at the helm, who we were talking about. Uh, uh, It was a competitive place to get into. I think it was, but I I wasn't uncompetitive. I Uh just wasn't what the kids are now. I I didn't have a PhD. I didn't have a grant, uh, a record of grant uh, funding. I didn't have um, a significant publication record. What was I? I was a well-trained clinician. Uh I've been a chief medical resident. I had some, um, I want to say this as humbly as possible, but in retrospect, having been selected for that, I must have had or displayed some leadership skills at the time. Right, I see. Um, but it I, wasn't the way it was now where you had to have no. a track record of oncology publications, right? I, I, I Look, I used to joke with the uh, younger people I interviewed in the last years when I was at Memorial yeah. that I would never get in now. <laughs> the it, it is an arms race, it feels like. I was joking with somebody that um, recently somebody emailed me wanting to do research uh, with me, and they said, I'm a sophomore in high school. And I said, oh boy. I, I said, you know, you uh, really are ahead of the curve, because I don't think I was uh, I was in my medical school before I even started thinking about that. Well, we're going to come back to this probably yeah. based on what um, I think we're going to talk about. Yeah. But one of the things that I have learned is the value of having a vision and a plan and, and moving with intention. Okay. And yeah, when we'll kids come, yeah. come to you yeah. and, and, and describe that aim to you and, and look for that kind of work, I'm really respectful because what that says to me is somebody somewhere has developed a pretty sharp vision for where they're trying to get to. And I, I wish that I had been as sharp-eyed in those days. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. No, I think it's, it's almost inspirational because it makes me think, look at this person, they are, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel uh, proud of them almost that they have figured out what they want to do with, with their life so early on. Okay, so this is, so now you're, you, you ended up um, uh, moored at uh, Sinai uh, in the emergency room. Um, but, you know, even though it's not directly applicable to oncology, I suspect you gained a lot of skills there that did help you in the years to come. Uh, that is has to be true. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, I, I again, there are all these little wrinkles. 
but emergency medicine was a new specialty as well. Okay, yeah. And I happened to train at the Medical College of Pennsylvania, which is one of the earliest emergency medicine residencies, and I was um, closely um, connected to that training program, even as an internal medicine resident. I knew some of those early leaders. There was a guy, Dave Wagner, was wrote this textbook on mm-hmm. emergency medicine, and there were some other uh, great, great people, Steve Davidson, uh, and others who I think um, went on to, to really highly influential careers in that early field. So I came to the emergency room job with a little bit of ER mm-hmm. um, training, albeit not in a training program. The thing about medicine is, and this is globally true, and it matters as you think about management and administration and leadership, but fundamentally, we in medicine find ourselves over and over again having to make decisions, not put them off, in the face of incomplete, sometimes evolving, occasionally wrong information. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have to take the responsibility to make a call and mm-hmm. act to the best of our abilities. And what's hard and emotionally challenging, I think not given that much attention, is we have to live depending on our own internal sensitivity mm-hmm. with the consequences. Mm-hmm. The emergency room, among many places in mm-hmm. medicine, mm-hmm. brings that into sh- sharp relief. Yes, absolutely. You're right. I mean, uh, it's often the greatest uncertainty, and decisions have to be made. And and, and as much as we you know, certainly champion and believe in shared decision-making, some of those decisions are hard to share because they are really kind of um, in the heat of the moment, nonspecific, particularly in an emergency room setting. Well, it's not just there. I mean, uh, again, everything's evolved, and and there are uh, levels of knowledge and depths of skill and sensitivity. But fundamentally, even in a shared decision-making environment, we are the professionals. Mm -hmm. People are turning to us in moments of vulnerability, with fear, with personal challenges in terms of absorbing information. And no matter what we say, they're asking us to give them advice. A recommendation, yeah. And I think that's... Um, but but let yeah, me just no, say, go on, go on. what I find fascinating about it at this part of my career mm-hmm. is that it actually is very good preparation for all manner of challenges outside of the acuity of healthcare. I see, okay. And that's the point I'm, I'm really getting at. Okay, that's interesting. So, so you finished this a year, and then you went to Sloan Kettering. And in those days, you had to split. You had to either choose medical oncology or hematology. Uh, no, quite the opposite. Um, uh-huh. You you had to you had to declare what you were doing, but it was two years if you wanted. I think if I remember this yeah. correctly, it was two years of training to be eligible for the med onc boards, okay. or maybe for him, and three you could be eligible for, for both. both. Similar to the way it is now. Okay, so you declared med onc. No, I actually did three years. It's oh, you did actually, the three. Yeah, oh. this is a, a small thing. So I. Functionally and practically, yes, you're right. I declared Medonc very specifically. Uh-huh. Um, I did a little bit of leukemia research at the beginning of my career. I spent some time with great lymphoma clinicians uh, in those days. Um, and I quickly uh, found myself associated uh, working with David Kelson, who was running the GI program then. Mm-hmm. And I did a m- little bit of work in mesothelioma and pancreas cancer. And then we'll probably talk about this, but um, my ultimately my... my mentor, Larry Norton, was recruited there during my first year of fellowship, and I was redirected to a degree to to breast cancer. I planned to be board certified in MedOnc 
and him. I see. I did not follow through on that plan. I see. But that was my original That was your plan. original intention. So then Norton came in 89 from the NCI. No, Larry came in uh, the fall of 1988, if memory serves, okay. um, from Mount Sinai, where he had been on the faculty after the NCI. Oh, I see. He was at Sinai between the two. Okay. Um, and and was it your, in, your interest in breast cancer or your interest in working with Larry Norton? That's a great question because I think it was... Um, it, it was probably more about Larry at the beginning, and then it mm. became about breast cancer. But even something more than those than that one plus one. It wasn't one plus one makes two. What Larry um, brought to Memorial at the time was a um, well. Let me give a little bit of background. Yeah. There wasn't really a breast cancer program the way we think of it today. There was a really strong surgical program, and the institution, of course, was well known for its surgery. Uh, in, in over many decades. Medicine, um, medical oncology, uh, was focused on drug development, and I'm not sure about more, but some of the early adjuvant therapy combination chemotherapy trials mm -hmm. were being conducted by a few investigators mm -hmm. who were there in those days. But there wasn't this highly focused, concentrated breast cancer program. So when Larry got there, the I think this is what happened. The Breast and Gynecologic Medicine Service was created. It got large with those two and split in a matter of, of just a few years into breast and a separate GYN oncology service. What, what, what I remember precisely about Larry's arrival was he was this um, unbelievably optimistic, energetic, can-do person. And he was convinced that outcomes could be improved if we just did a better job um, both with the available drugs and with some that were newly emerging. And there were two drugs that were emerging in those first few months or years when Larry got to mm -hmm. Memorial. One was, uh, the, one was the family of, of drugs, the growth factors. First, GMCSF, mm -hmm. and very shortly after, GCSF. Mm -hmm. And the other were the taxanes. And, mm -hmm. and we had this opportunity in those early days to, to use those. So you asked what it was that got me interested. Well, at the beginning, it was the excitement of new drugs, new studies, new um, frontiers to push, and the excitement of working with a person who clearly had vision and, and dreams and, and goals. And I came to really enjoy taking care of patients with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It answered a question that you asked before, and, and I didn't really get all to, but, but my interest or my pleasure, my satisfaction in oncology came from crossing a very specific bridge for me. The bridge is this. On one side, there is a person, and usually surrounded by family, friends, loved ones, whatever, scared by what is often or was perceived as one of the worst diagnoses a person could get, cancer, mm -hmm. followed by fear of the unknown, mm -hmm. the short course ahead, the long course ahead, all of life's plans seemingly at risk. And then in our side, in, in organized medicine, a greater degree, not perfect, but a greater degree of comfort and knowledge about what the future held. Mm -hmm. And increasingly over my career in breast cancer, mm -hmm. that the outcome could be really pretty good. Mm -hmm. Getting families and patients across that divide, that journey, is the part of this that I always found satisfying. Mm -hmm. If that meant sitting for 
30 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes or three phone calls or whatever for each family mm -hmm. for whatever reason that part of this is what appealed to me and in breast cancer um, I just found a lot of satisfaction mastering it and being able to to help people with my knowledge I, I don't you know I, I want to make sure that I don't know how that sounds it isn't about me exactly it's about this real world that has scared pay people in it about this real world that has Some optimism yeah. um, um, what's the right word grounded optimism yeah. reality yeah. and it's about crossing over so people could leave informed ready to take the next step and indeed pursue a, a good outcome teaching people how to make that transition or rather how to go through the process and how to, to what to expect and understand. I mean, never could you plan or say you do it perfectly. Never could you say you do it right with each family and each person. But that's the part of of this that appealed to me. Uh, it sounds like you feel like it's both a privilege and that you enjoyed that, you know, that opportunity to communicate with somebody and take them there. You've also said the thing that I've uh, I, I hear people who um, you know I've not had the chance to work with you clinically, but I people who I've worked with clinically who I think are very very good. Uh, exceptional in, in in the in the clinic room, they often tell me exactly what you said, which is that they they feel as if they continue to work to be better uh, than they were. They never feel as if they're doing a perfect job, and I think that is one of the hallmarks of somebody who cares a lot about that art of communication and how to get better at it. Um, so, I, and what about the other part about breast cancer that I thought might have drawn you to it, which is that you really kind of have a range of patient encounters from curative. Um, you know, this is somebody you're probably going to follow for years, decades to come to people who are unfortunately nearing the end of life in whom the chance to sort of make those months or weeks as good as possible is the best you can hope for. You get all that range in breast oncology. Well, I, I think you're right. And, and even more, I would even extend your, <laughs> your visual in a, a couple yeah. of other, at least another dimension. Yeah. The disease range is as you say although that is i mean we can talk scientifically debate which factors matter but breast cancer has been transformed over the last century Fair. um from advanced disease likely early death to early detection to lots of people treated mm -hmm. to most people reasonably expecting to live a normal lifespan mm -hmm. to most people expecting to be able to to maybe forget parts of their treatment mm -hmm. i'm not saying all of it um, but also, um, it still, of course, kills about 40,000 people a year. Mm -hmm. The number is you know, slowly drifting downward uh, of late as the population has aged, become more obese. In a sense, the disease pressure has gone up. Hmm. So that number is a little better than it sounds, relatively speaking, but mm -hmm. it's still obviously way too many. So you're right. It still has the end-of-life um, component of so much of, of oncology. But I'll add something else. It also had, and, and earlier than some other areas, it had aspects of precision medicine. Mm -hmm. There was a receptor. Mm -hmm. There really was a targeted therapy for the receptor. Mm -hmm. it, it generally represented a less toxic approach to treatment, and it opened up the opportunity for scientific exploration. Mm -hmm. it, on top of that, in the prior, let's say, decades, there was a range of chemotherapy, conventional chemotherapy agent sensitivity, so that part was interesting. The last thing I'll say is the community in breast cancer, and by which I mean my colleagues both in the U.S. and around the world, got organized, I think, 
in a productive way um, to, to identify the benefits and risks of therapy in a way that could influence public health. And that's another important part of this because it was in, in breast cancer that the Oxford overview analysis mm-hmm. could be done. The early meta-analysis. breast meta-analysis, right. That's right. right. And, and y- you know, it leads to certain consequences, um, statistical significance over numerically small differences mm-hmm. and so forth. But the real goal there was a good goal. It was to understand what was true and what should be public policy. And I think that, again, the community being willing to work together. Look, uh, just look at the guy like uh, Bernie Fisher and, yeah. the, and the mastectomy lumpectomy uh-huh. challenge. What he did was convince a group of skeptics yes. to actually randomize yes. patients yeah. for this very personal decision, in a sense, and he succeeded. So and that f- must have come out right when you were in fellowship, right? As a yeah, yeah, it was just even a little before, a little I before. See. But the the concept in the field was collaborative. That's mm-hmm. what I guess I'm driving at. So you have the personal, the interaction with patients. Of course. You have the range of disease states, as you pointed out. Of course. You have emerging and evolving science. There was no HER2 testing right. when I began. Right. And then you also have a community that has been over and over again willing to roll up its sleeves and ask hard questions in uh, both non-randomized and randomized trials. And so for me, that was just, it felt like a, either it felt like the right place to be or it evolved in that direction. I, I mean, see. But it's interesting to think, I think, about all those aspects. I see. And yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And a number of active agents, all the cytotoxics, several active cytotoxics, you had targeted therapy through estrogen receptor. From uh, ovarian ablation in 1896, yeah. there was, I mean, this yes. story goes back. I think I think that I so I can I definitely see that a lot of things were sort of happening at the same time there and you had Larry Norton who's a very charismatic person and um, visionary and and you describe him as that yeah, yeah. Um, so you you ended up working with him staying there um, for pretty much the the vast majority of your career was at Sloan Kettering at some point you got to the point where they handed you the the big hat. The, the chief hat, the section <laughs> chief hat. Uh, yeah, they're not sections at Memorial, they're services. The, uh, services. Yeah, it's okay. The, yeah. the thing is that um, they didn't so much hand me the hat, but, yeah. but this is an, a mentoring story. Uh-huh. Larry was president of ASCO, or he knew he was going to be the president of ASCO. And I mean, he could tell the story better than I, but he um, recognized that you can't do everything. And in, in a, I think, remarkable move that not many people would make, he declared his intention to step down as service chief so that he could be president of ASCO. And this created an opportunity for me. I had to compete for the job. This is in the late 1990s. It was 98. 98. And he had held that position for about a decade. Well, no, he had held it from when he created it. <laughs> I see. Okay. So, which was, I guess, 91. I'd have to go back and double check. Okay. But I assume when he got there, they made him this chief but but yeah so but think about that from a mentoring yeah. point of view and and especially but well, anyway it, it's one of the most um un, the, unappreciated um parts of of all of this for me is the recognition of the willingness to step aside i i i like to call it making room yeah that one of the aspects of leadership is making room for a new generation to take the helm right and you were very young at the time you were I telling me 38 you're, yeah. you're 38 um and and how big was the section uh, service back then? 
if memory serves, we were about 12 people then. I so I, it was no longer in its infancy. Yeah. Um, and a couple of things were true then. The fellowship program was large. The breast program was getting um, more and more resources. There were these exciting drugs and, and interventions at the time. Uh, we were already, of course, well into the um, trastuzumab era, the taxanes, dose and schedule. These were the things that our service was uh, building, a, I think, a research portfolio as well as a clinical Excellent, a reputation I hope for clinical excellence at the time. So I did not walk in to a blank slate at all. I walked into a humming machine. Mm -hmm. And then the challenge over the years that followed for me were um, the changing geography. You know, as part of the broader healthcare changes, Memorial was expanding its footprint mm -hmm. and weaving a network of sites into a cohesive service, um, expanding the number of, of roles for people and allowing them each to have meaningful uh, research careers, identifying those research niches, all of that mm -hmm. was, a, was uh, were certainly those were key challenges during those years. I see. Um, over the years, you mentored many junior faculty that came up through the division and many fellows that have gone on to other. Um, is that one of the highlights of being, being the service chief? Well, for insiders within Memorial, I used to say, and I, I think it's still true, although I've been gone for a while, that the service chief job was really one of the greatest jobs you could have because mm -hmm. the domain expertise was concentrated at that level. Right. And if you did this right, you set the culture and the direction for a team of ambitious people. Mm -hmm. Included in that was the training of fellows and yeah, I, I, I certainly loved working with fellows. Um, I wish I had been better trained to be a trainer oh, yeah. than I was. I think one of them, again, one of the advantages we have today, and I see this within ASCO, is the attention paid in a formal way to training the trainers. In fact, ASCO has somebody who's dedicated uh, Jimmy Von Rowan to education and, and these kinds of things and training the trainers. Well, Jamie is our Vice President for Education, Science, and Professional Development, and one of her many, um, and she has a pretty thick portfolio, but one of, the major, one of her major initiatives, in fact, is, is the broad topic of professional education, and then specifically helping program directors and other educators mm -hmm. um, get better and better at their job. I think this is broadly recognized now. Mm -hmm. All I'm pointing out is, like so many things uh, in, in decades gone by, many of us were just thrown into situations right. uh, with minimal mm -hmm. uh, formal training. And I, I, it's, not, it's not that I am embarrassed by whatever work I did. I hope, I, I don't think I did anything embarrassing, but it's that I now see with the benefit of hindsight the many ways that maybe I could have even been more effective. I see, that's interesting. But you must look across the nation and many breast oncology division leaders now uh, came out of Sloan Kettering. Yeah, well, Memorial, first of all, the fellowship itself was very large. When yeah. I got there, even in, in the 80s, one of the amazing things is the fellowship was really like a mid-sized hospital residency program. There were typically, just in medical oncology, 45 to 50 fellows in total at any one time, wow, about 15 yeah. per year, and then a few that would do a an extra year and some visitors. Yeah. So that's a big program. And to their credit, not mine, it was run in a very formal way. 
monthly rotations, different services, formal education. In later years, uh, David Spriggs, who was my boss for a long time there, he was the, the division head, hmm. um, formalized things like the Young Investigator Application Program. And I mention that because it's mm -hmm. just an example of what happens with size and mm -hmm. focus. They um, put in a program whereby all of the fellows prepare a grant submission, not in 15 minutes or two weeks or a month, but over the course of 12 months, they prepare to submit and they critique each other so that the work product that comes out is better. Yeah. And I think that that kind of formal approach makes their graduates desirable. And indeed, over the years in waves, we had the good fortune to hire a number of them into our program as attendings, and a good number of them went around the country, not just in breast cancer, but into various uh, roles and, and, and positions. And I think that, that uh, that's something we sh that the institution, of course, should be proud of. They're not alone. I think that um, certainly the, the dedicated cancer centers that have the history of having these kinds of resources yeah. have done this in, in many places. And uh, Dana-Farber, you know, and, and MD Anderson and Mayo Clinic and the University of Michigan mm -hmm. and, you know, Stanford and UW and, and so forth. There are many places that in different ways UCSF, I mean, I, I it's a little bit random and I don't want to insult anybody. Right. But yeah, there are but, many longstanding historical cancer centers that um, really do invest in the fellows. But I was impressed once recently because somebody gave me a copy of um, the the cancer biology reading list for the MSKCC fellows, which mm. I still still think is a 15 per annum. And this reading list was literally, you know, all of the seminal articles in cancer biology that really kind of shape how we think about the disease. And next to it was a list of who is the faculty that's going to guide us through this paper to the fellows. I was looking down that list. You see Nobel laureates on that list. You see very esteemed people. I thought to myself, this is quite an investment in the fellows uh, when you're getting, you know, a Nobel laureate to walk you through uh, the hallmarks of cancer paper. Uh, you know, I think it's 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 a good training. Um, <laughs> I can't I can't argue. Um, yes, you're right, and I think that I think that um, that's another example. I think of the wisdom of investing in education. Now, let me ask you. Um, one of the things that I feel like. Um, you know, you're very strong at is you've run many, many, many trials. I've been a part of many, many trials. You've run trials. Um, you know, running trials, I feel like it's an apprenticeship in a sort of a different craft. And that is something that you don't learn from reading books. Uh, do you agree with that? I mean, how did you learn to run trials? And uh, do, you, do you still learn things when you're in your second decade of running trials that you didn't know when you started? You know, what, what's that like to run so many trials? Well, here again, I'm starting to sound like the old man that I am, but it was a lot easier in the um, 80s to write a study. I see. I think that um, Jim Holland, who just died yeah. in the last About year or so, yeah. uh, James, I mean, yeah, James Holland. in his talk, he actually had a document he showed, which was one of the first CMF, CMF version um, adjuvant therapy protocols from the cancer from the acute leukemia group i guess uh -huh. at the time. don't tell me three pages or it's yeah. it might be eight pages i, I don't know yeah. but it's short spaced. and sweet it is and, yeah. and not just that but this is also important the funding at the time wasn't so challenging you at least my experience was there was actually revenue sitting inside of our system that allowed us to do phase two studies at times it, with internal funding yes 
The funding yeah. at the time of the late 1980s and early 1990s was, um, you know, predominantly NCI funding at that point. The industry's role, although there, was not the way it is now. We're, we're talking about upwards of 90% of clinical trials funded almost exclusively by the industry. But even more, yeah. or let's say, and also. And also, okay. The institutions? Yeah, the revenue from the practice to some degree mm -hmm. could be used. And the cost of the trials, at least as we understood it, maybe our insights were limited, were much lower. What I'm just saying yeah. is if you had a really good idea in the clinic, yeah. it was not crazy to think that you would write a study and be able to do the study and worry about the funding a little less than now. So that's the second thing. And, and, and you just needed doctors to agree. So for, if you and a few other doctors agreed this was a good idea, you could do it. Well, we had the IRB of and course, all of that yeah. by then. But you didn't need the, you didn't need the company's buy-in. Well, that's it. right. Yeah. And so that's, it's a version of the investigator initiated. Right. But, it, but I, my recollection is that we had a much easier time than today initiating a study, um, having real control over it, and revising it as we thought about it. It just, the process didn't feel quite so challenging. I think of my, you know, my colleague Andy Seidman who spent so much time really figuring out how to give taxanes for breast cancer and the moment when the light bulb went off to just give weekly paclitaxel mm -hmm. and do the phase two studies for that. And there were many other experiences like that. So I say all this uh, as a nod of profound respect. I think it's harder now. Mm. And when you ask what I learn, I'm not sure I could keep up with it uh, were I active in this way anymore. I think that the resources needed to conduct high quality clinical research today, first of all, I think in some ways the research may even be higher quality because of some of the rigor. Fair enough. But yeah. I think the resources needed, or at least our understanding of the resources is far greater. I just think it's a whole lot harder now. And it takes really a steel will to bend systems to yes. make them efficient and pliant, which by the way is one of our responsibilities. Um, one point that I always rang true for me is if it takes a year or two to launch a study and five years to do the study, it is unlikely, it's not impossible, but it's unlikely that it's really a burning clinical question. <laughs> well, that's a that's a fair point, yeah. Um, particularly when you know recruitment is is very sluggish. But you know, I think I, you know, I, I, I sort of share your your view of things. I do think it's harder. I think these days, for someone who aspires to be a trialist these days, who's coming out of say fellowship right now, I think they need to be two, you know, many things. But at least I think they need to learn from somebody who is a trialist. I think that you're not going to become a trialist unless you apprentice for a trialist. And then the other thing is, I think in addition to being smart and hardworking, you have to be, for better or worse, to use the word, you have to be a politician. You have to be able to get people who don't agree uh, or may not see what you're doing is very important to the same table and to some compromise so we can negotiate this trial and actually run it. So two points. Yeah. The apprenticeship point, which I didn't address before, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I was trained to do clinical trials by David Kelson and then by Larry Norton. Mm -hmm. And that part's just, that's the story. And it was apprenticeship. It was write, edit, redraft, write, edit, redraft, submit for approval, edit, redraft, submit for final approval, all of that. And those discussions, that hands-on mentoring, that's the apprenticeship. Then it was collect the data, learn how to audit the data, and so forth. And all of that, again, was far less rigorous, I think, than it is today. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing, not, not to sound like in the days of the Giants, 
but while we did have PCs when I started in the career, this career, they weren't networked yet. <laughs> so they had my first ones at my desktop had two floppy disk drives. Uh-huh. One ran the program and one stored the data. Wow. And 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 I say this to say that our tools were not so powerful as they are now. And, and there wasn't an army of research study assistants and nurses and others helping. Maybe there should have been, but there weren't. So it was very hands-on. On the political side, which you raised, I think you're right, but I actually think you're touching on something even broader. I mentioned before that the breast cancer community was collaborative. Yeah. Nobody can go into any collaborative exercise, whether it's policy making or guideline setting or running a protocol, um, expecting to win every argument on every point all the time. And it's not even about winning and losing and keeping score. Mm-hmm. You have to recognize that you might be wrong. Hmm. And you might be wrong on everything, even things you're certain of. So the give and take occurs both in the design of the study, but also over the years, months, years of interaction with your colleagues. If there's trust, I win this because my argument's better, but another day there's something I'm going to give up that I think is important. You know, it may, you may think I'm talking about protocol design here, but I'm really not. I'm just talking about how we make any any collaborative decision. Yeah. And I think um, what I think you're getting out of something, which is that the people who can't handle that you don't get everything you want, they don't make it because they'll burn out. They'll be frustrated by the the things they don't get, rather than see that they are accomplishing many other things. Maybe I mean I you know sometimes they do well alone. I mean there's I all see. different paths to success. I don't That's know true. right, but I think <laughs> running trials these days I think is almost impossible to be a single, well. Yeah. So so I yeah. think that there's so is a multivariate yeah this discussion. One thing that's changed is you've alluded to is that there's a very different role for the funders these days. Yeah. Um, it's also gotten a lot harder to run, or let me say maybe we've recognized some of the limitations of small studies, so we don't do quite so many of, the, of those single center phase twos. Fair enough, especially um, in breast. Where, right. Yeah, but even other places. And by the way, it's a universal issue that there's the disease, but also referral patterns and demographics, all of which can lead uh, to a misunderstanding of the results. And and, uh, and I think the stakes have gotten higher financially. I don't know. I haven't thought enough about this to make this into a whole big segment here. Yeah. But I, I, I think that um, it is fair to say that the clinical trials environment today is more complex than it was, um, more expensive than it was, requires more p- people than it did before. And I think all of these mean that the new um, investigators need to know what question they're trying to answer and need to learn early how these tools work in order to make progress. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I started by saying, I think it's harder today than it was. I think that's true. I, and uh, I think so. And maybe we'll circle back to, but I want to talk, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, um, you know, what you've been doing the last three years, which is being the C, serving as the CEO of ASCO and, and following on the footsteps of somebody uh, Alan Lichter, who was very well respected and, and did a wonderful job and, and was the face of ASCO for, was it 11 years? 10 years. 10 years. Um, what made you what made you interested in, in taking this role and shifting your career uh, in this direction? So Alan became another mentor for me later in, in life. Um, as you age, as you mature, uh, as you start to think about impact, we all evolve in different directions. 
certain scientists pursue new leads, they find new answers, they broaden areas of inquiry and so forth. And I think in that generic sense, this was that for me. So what happened to me was a series of things that I can reconstruct into a cohesive thematic story. I wish it had been this intentional, but it wasn't. Mm, Thing one was that um, I was introduced to a GI doc studying inflammatory bowel disease. Think, what does that have to do with this? Well, um, through that, I developed and grew out an interest in the broad area of uh, COX-2 biology and inflammation in general, and then its link to um, obesity, a growing public health problem in the U.S., and the association between breast cancer, especially postmenopausal ER-positive breast cancer, and obesity. Mm-hmm. Now, those can just be a bunch of spots on the wall that you tie together randomly, but there was, and is now even more so, a, a biologic link that you can pursue on those issues. That is to say that there is this white adipose inflammation. Um, you can identify it histologically with crown-like structures. It is associated with the production of all manner of um, uh, pro-inflammatory mediators leading to prostaglandin synthesis. The whole pathway has been identified. Um, it is known to occur in obesity as well as some lean people, and it is targetable. So my focus on breast cancer ultimately led me through this association uh, with, this was with Andy Dannenberg at, at Cornell, to the public health problem. And how do you address that problem? So one answer is you drug everybody. You tolerate the status quo and you drug everybody to prevent disease. And that's not very satisfying after a while. It's also. Yeah, and it's it, also not very effective. It's also not very popular. I mean, fundamentally. Another answer is you do something about the public health side. So I began to to develop this interest in that part of of policy. Two, I was becoming more and more involved in ASCO. I served on the scientific program committee. I served on, we had a thing, believe it or not, called the Internet Services Committee early in my career. That just shows you how rudimentary things were. We knew this Internet was going to be important. This dial-up Internet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Okay. um, And I served in a few other roles. And... um, I got elected onto the board of ASCO mm-hmm. as a treasurer, which is a management role a little bit. Mm-hmm. It just I enjoyed that. In those years, we were coming off of, or we were in the middle of still, what turned out in retrospect to be 10 years of flat funding for science research at the NCI and the NIH. Mm-hmm. And you've all seen these yeah. plots, the 25% loss in real purchasing power because right. of inflation. And right. and I got pretty hot under the collar as I, I, I'm pretty calm, but I found it infuriating yeah. that a country that had built one part of its exceptionalism on scientific investment and leadership was seeming to cede that to others in the world. Yeah. And worse, in a way, doing it without a real discussion about it. It wasn't that we had chosen to take this back seat. We just were letting it happen. So I started to get involved politically through ASCO in terms of the government relations committee and and banging on on congressmen and women's doors and senators' doors and starting to talk to their aides about this. And the interesting thing is, ironically, that window for me reduced my middle-aged cynicism about politics because what I started to see 
was while it there's lots to be cynical about, mm-hmm. the engagement had the potential maybe to make a difference. And you see that right now because right now we're in a moment where there is bipartisan support year over year for increases NIH in funding. the NIH funding. Exactly right. And you know, the other thing it puts in, you talked in the beginning of this podcast about how you came of age in the 1960s when the funding for federal science investment was at an all-time high. So I can only imagine how frustrating it is for somebody whose career is in science and medicine to see the things that are being lost are things no one ever sees because it's future discoveries that are being lost by the shrinking NIH budget. Exactly. Right. But, but not about me. It's about yeah. the country. Of course. This is, a, this is actually patriotism at root here. So, right. So, um, okay. So you participated in ASCO and you felt like that actually people res- people responded to what you were doing? Right. And the work I had done, mm-hmm. drug development and um, uh, the obesity work, was being carried on well by people I had trained and others. And I found myself jazzed over the possibility of helping people countrymen, mm-hmm. collaborators, scientists, everybody through this role. So I was really, um, uh, I found that year as president and my years on the board of ASCO uh, as, as um, satisfying in a new way, something I couldn't have really known about. Obviously, I always had an interest, but I didn't have an effector. I didn't have a lever. And then I felt like maybe I started to have one. So the, the last part of this is um, I finished out my term as president of ASCO past president, rotated off the board. And we talked before, I think, I forgot what you called it, um, uh, when a mentor chooses to step aside, making room. Making room, that's what I like. Yeah, I don't know if this is that or not. I I never really asked Alan about it, maybe I should, but but Alan always was pretty clear that he didn't think a leader should stay in a role like CEO of ASCO for more than 10 years. Mm And indeed, he began to talk about this actively uh, with leadership where I was there and with the board. And so when he decided that it was time, um, I threw my hat in uh, for, for, for this role. And, and um, I haven't looked back once. That is uh, that's fascinating. But, okay. well, you know, and I'll, I'll add it. Yeah. Maybe you want to talk about this. It's a very different job from everything I did before. That's what I wanted to get to. <laughs> yeah. I want to know... Um, no, I guess one thing I do know is that the, unlike many other medical professional organizations, the CEO of ASCO has to be a physician. Is that correct? That's true. It's in our bylaws. And, yeah. and it's interesting. I had a conversation with another physician CEO uh, of a different um, medical society. Actually, it's, it's a funny side note. Um, there are, I think, 66,000 um, trade associations and professional societies and whatever across America. So well, you have to appreciate we're not, yeah. we're, we're, we're one of many. But the number of CEO, CEOs of medical societies who are physicians themselves, I am told is falling. Yeah. It is already the minority. And there's good reason for that, by the way. The strength and weakness I bring to this role is, A, yes, I'm a physician. That's the strength, maybe. Mm-hmm. And presumably, I bring a certain set of insights. But let me be clear, it's also a big organization and it requires professional management. And it's a little like our discussion before about getting thrown into leadership in in medicine. Um, Not all physicians will have been adequately exposed and trained for all of those jobs. And I would never presume that I was. I've learned a ton in the last three years. I'm really fortunate that ASCO um, beyond me is staffed by phenomenal leadership on the um, staff side, um, and they teach me, and they guide me, and they help me with them 
collectively make what I hope are the best decisions for the organization. But, and, and I'll say one more thing, it's interesting about the evolution in medicine. It's very possible that the next generation of docs will have a greater number trained in, in this area and able to step in. I see, being able to serve these kind of roles. But what um, what do you view as the role of the professional organization ASCO? What's the, you know, you talked about the part of being, the leadership is to have the vision. What is the vision for ASCO? What, what can ASCO do that can't be done by others? So you ask a whole bunch of great questions in there, and, and I, I'm going to break it into a couple of answers, which will hopefully address your question. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the role of the CEO, which is to set strategy with the board, establish the vision and goals, and then implement programs and plans to deliver them. That's basically the CEO role. The professional society's role is evolving. I think historically there was a time when membership in your professional society was one of the defining features of being a professional. I don't know that that's absolutely true anymore, and it begs the question of why. What is it that a professional society should do, must do, to have value for its members? This is what we spend, honestly, all of our time at ASCO. Everything we do now is focused on this fundamental question of what's the value to the profession for us. And it boils down to three things at a high level. And you could take them in any order. It is, quality of care, how do we enable our members to deliver higher quality of care? It is education, how do we establish standards, maintain those standards, and give people the tools they need to be always growing and always learning, keeping up, and research. And by research at the professional society level, I don't only mean what we've been talking about, which is the conduct of research, although we're getting more and more into that space, but the amassing of research, distilling and analysis of research, and you take those three things together, and in short order, you have what Rich Shilsky early on called our virtuous cycle. It doesn't matter where you hop on, but the professional society's job is to spin that wheel, whereby we assess quality, we identify gaps, we identify the solutions to those gaps or the lack of solutions which fuels research and with the results of that we educate everybody we can so that they can deliver quality we measure the quality and the wheel goes round and round i see do you know off the top of your head roughly what percentage of medical oncologists in the united states are members of asco yeah we we have a a sense of it um it's somewhere in the range of two-thirds two-thirds um and and in terms of the sort of the quality, you know, one of the ways in which you you address that is through putting out high quality evidence based guidelines. But that wasn't all. That's fairly recent, isn't that? The last decade that ASCO's been doing that. Yeah, well, uh, let's back yeah. up a half step. Um, okay. I realize in answering your last question, there's an opportunity to point something out. Okay. ASCO is not the American Society of Medical Oncology. It is, and this is another unique aspect you were talking before, asking before about the CEO as physician. Yeah. My predecessor was a radiation oncologist. I guess that's Our right. current president is a surgeon. Yeah. The president after her is indeed a medical oncologist, and the one after him is a radiation oncologist. Mm-hmm. The board is comprised of surgeons and medical oncologists, um, radiation oncologists, community oncologists, international oncologists, and so on. And 
it sounds, you know, maybe um, obvious or it may seem unimportant, but it's actually an amazing opportunity. This is a multidisciplinary society. Mm. It's about cancer care providers, doctors who take care of patients with cancer, and increasingly nurses and AP, you know, advanced practice mm-hmm. providers, advocates, and many, many others. The tent covers people who are engaged in improving quality of care for patients with cancer. And that, as I said before, is a great opportunity, but it's also an interesting challenge with regard to what a professional society is. Hmm. I see. Of course, yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. Yeah. I guess it's, it's good to conceptualize in this broader way. I guess one question I want to ask you is... Well, you, how, you were asking about the guidelines. The guidelines, yeah. You want to go there? Yeah. Yeah, so... This so, is a new invention. Well, with the expansion of medical knowledge, and I would say the specialization, not formally but informally, in oncology, so that I could be a breast cancer oncologist, and you might be a leukemia doc, and, and so on. Um, you know, we have attention in terms of maintaining cutting-edge skills and and developing expertise and where we draw those lines. So I, I think that that plus a number of other factors, which you know maybe we could get into or not, have led to a call for easy-to-distill, if you will, summaries of the state-of-the-art, but that go beyond that and actually provide evidence-based direction. I think, and, and I, I, I always want to point this out, that the NCCN tackled this problem and did it in a way that I think is really important to call out because they recognized that the quality of the evidence, the levels of evidence, were by definition going to be variable. And they further recognized that docs were nonetheless going to have to make choices. If A and B and C all had equally mediocre mm-hmm. justification in the end. We can argue all we want, mm-hmm. um, you know, in 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 the abstract about which is right or wrong. But on Tuesday at three thirty in the afternoon, you got to decide. Doctor Smith is going to have to make a choice. And what they did, without elevating it too much, meaning without um, without making more of it than what it was, is they said we're going to ask our expert panels, what is it you just do when you're confronted with this. And we will code this as our guideline for now, mm-hmm. open to the possibility, maybe the certainty, of upgrading it later. And people published, I forget the statistic, that you know some modest proportion of the decision nodes within the NCCN are actually supported by high-level evidence. Right. It's glib to take that as a criticism of them. It's a recognition of a limited body of data for important questions. That's I, I present that as background. Yeah. In contrast. And I guess a full disclosure, you know, I'm a bit uh, one of those people who's has done some publications on NCC and guidelines. Well, yeah. I was on the first yeah. breast cancer panel, and, and I say this, you know, I try to, to, to be fair about it. Are they perfect? No. Could they be perfect? No. No. What's the alternative? Fair. Well, the alternative is to not have them and to have something else or nothing in their place, and that nothing could be greater chaos greater randomness in treatment. That's my point because... But I, yeah. People, I, that, that, no, but no, anyway, yeah. that's a background. Yeah. It's not the path that ASCO took, though. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, right. your, your guidelines are very different than NCCN. Right. Right. And I'm going to present yeah. what is my view as a CEO yeah. 
of their strength and their weakness. And by the way, it's a reason that we've been able to collaborate with NCCN on several projects of late. Hmm. Our guidelines are evidence-based, and they represent the results of a painstaking deep dive done by a team of experts. I don't mean volunteers, I mean staff yeah. and volunteers yeah. into a topic. Sometimes a string of topics making something like you know, a series of steps, sometimes one key decision point. Yeah. And they weight the evidence and they present an answer or they write. Sometimes I can think of some that there is no good answer. Yeah. The strength is that they are as, I mean, I don't, I'm sure we don't get everything perfectly right, but they are as sincere an effort at an evidence-based answer as we can get. The weakness is they are sometimes harder for people to actually use in the real world, and they don't fill all the gaps, just what I was describing yeah. before. They're stricter. I think they're stricter in my reading of it, is that if it doesn't achieve high evidence, it often does not recommend or does not offer as a recommendation. The NCCN has dual roles, though. The NCCN is a compendia, as you know. Yeah, now, so that for, came a little right. bit later. That came later. Right. And, yeah, and because of that, sometimes sometimes you look at NCCN, you feel as if it's a grab bag of 20 options. But I understand exactly how they yeah. got there, and I'm gonna say this again because it's important to me. I'm not involved with no, them at all yeah. anymore, but I am very respectful of the real-world approach that they've taken, given the highly variable nature of the underlying evidence. There is no fixing that overnight. So you either end up just addressing, yeah. it's a little like the keys under the bright right. light old Just story. where the lamp, right, right exactly. Right, yeah. I can tell you what this yeah. brick looks like under the bright light, but you but know. no I'm, guidance for most of the decisions that are faced in clinical practice. Right, and we are grappling yeah. with this certainly right now. There is another dimension to the uh, ASCO yeah. uh, guidelines, which is the derivative measures, which are used in turn both to define the uh, COPE program meaning um, the Quality Oncology Practice Initiative and its certification, which is a practice level, not individual level uh, program. And then, of course, um, now increasingly the issue of, of uh, the MIPS program and reimbursement. Mm -hmm. What we want is for any of those measures that are especially going to be used for payment yes. or for judging quality, we want them to be evidence-based, and yes. they in turn rely on the same research approach as going to the guidelines. In many cases, they're derived from our guidelines, so we can write meaningful measures because we have the guidelines program. So it's a slightly different view. I will say that, uh, for example, uh, we had a nice, a really nice productive collaboration with NCCN on the immuno-oncology toxicity mm -hmm. uh, program, and we did this together, taking advantage, I think, I hope optimally, uh, of both group strengths, the depth of the analysis from ASCO on the evidence and the um, practical approach that the NCCN group took. And we put out a combined um, publication on this last year for this emerging area. I see. Uh, you know, so I've, I do enjoy reading the ASCO guidelines. I think that they are very high quality and, and evidence-based. You know, one thing that I wondered about, that I've always wanted, I want to ask you about. Um, you know, when I read something like the use of Oncotype DX, which you guys put some guidance on, there's a section in there on, on the use in node positive tumors, where we have this retrospective Kathy Albain study. And actually, the ASCO guidelines said that, you know, they didn't endorse it at the time. You're nodding your head. Um, although there were a lot of clinicians who do believe in that. Including yes. this one. Including, okay. <laughs> so that's what I want to know. So I actually think, you know, okay, so the ASCO came to what 
many practitioners of evidence-based medicine would think is a prudent decision, but it does run against what I think probably the majority of those doctors who are on that paper doing their own practice. What's the tension in that situation? What's yeah? Well, I'm not an author of that guideline. Yeah, and I there's a um, let's be clear there's a firewall mm-hmm. between um, staff, which I am, and the uh, volunteers who who produce that. I have my opinions uh, about it, but I'm very respectful. I think I think, and I don't know what's in everybody's head. But it could well be that what you're putting your finger on here is exactly the kind of tension we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. What the levels of evidence are versus the real world. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But but I do think that that's what – those are the things that kind of catch your eye when you read these things. Um, I wanted to ask you – so I guess I would say, you know, to to head this professional organization – it's been very different than what you've done before. Um, you find it gratifying? Oh, I, this is, I guess I should start by saying I'm the kind of kid who gave campus tours when I was um, a student. Uh-huh. So maybe I'm a little bit of a... Of a um, Stockholm syndrome. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I think that I'm I'm a little bit of a booster for whatever I'm doing. Yeah, you're, uh, you're an enthusiastic person. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And um, I'm having... Yeah tremendous amount of fun which in no way suggests that I had any more or less fun in my earlier jobs mm-hmm. um, at the time as I said before I thought being a service chief at Memorial was the greatest job mm-hmm. um, and and it was and, but the world changes everything changes this is a different way to contribute and it's also honestly a real professional challenge because as I as I've alluded to before just personally I have had to develop and acquire newfound skills to do this. And I can be very concrete in that regard. HR, cybersecurity, finance, Hmm. um, various education issues, lots of policy issues, Mm -hmm. um, organizational structures, strategic planning, and so on. These were all places where um, whatever I brought into the job, I've had to multiply yeah. yeah you've had to be beef all those skills up yeah yeah now let's talk a little bit about some of the asco efforts cancer link and taper um you know you mentioned cox2 inhibitors and i was reading some of your papers and i noticed in one you talked a little bit about the story of viox and another one you gave an example from cardiology and i thought to myself you're a, it's it's a very rare oncologist that gives examples outside of cancer medicine in their writing. This was the paper you wrote on big data a few oh, years yeah, ago. Yeah. yeah, you give some of these outside examples. So then now I kind of see, you know, you follow the Cox2 inhibitor story closely. That, but in all fairness, yeah. I didn't create that story. That I, I don't know if Alan did in the cancer link world or where we got that. I'd have to go back and look. This it's idea, a group effort. I see, right. This idea that... This wasn't, um, I, don't, don't attribute the Cox 2 part, that, that one analogy we used about early, that was really about... Yeah, um, yeah let's explain the analogy. Sentinel. Yes. Yeah, and we'll, we could talk about that, but that was just an easy one because it was actually, at the time, it was topical. It was very topical. And yeah. I think the point is well made, and I think, I mean, just to, just to give the point real quick, is that this, um, you know, obviously the Cox 2 inhibitors suffered from adverse safety signal that was not visible in the, in the registration studies. And that is always a threat that faces... 
any drug that there's some rare low-frequency adverse event that you will not see in a prospective study, whether it's subtrochanteric fractures from bisphosphonate or, you know, you name it. Um, but one of the points you were making eloquently was that if you harnessed a large real-world data set in a very, very short period of time, you'll be able to see a safety signal like that. And you might have been able to see it sooner in this particular example. I think that's right. And, and I never – we walk, walk a very fine balance. Let's just think about a spectrum for the moment. There's a world in which you know nothing about what goes on in the real world. There's a world in which you know everything that happens in the real world. By no, I mean you had you yeah, can you, get your fist around it. Right. Um, operating above that, there is a layer, if you will, a regulatory policy public safety layer. And a little bit like our discussion about being a physician, that layer, people have to make decisions in the interest of public health. Big data, be it CancerLink, be it pharma systems, whatever it is, do not necessarily get you improvements on that next layer. Mm. How you use the data is going to be very important, and mm. being aware of its limits, I think, is important. So it, when we talk about the COX-2 story or the surveillance in general, mm -hmm. I think it's important to make the following point. Complete ignorance, where we know nothing about it, can't be better than having the data. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. having the data does not mean that we would necessarily see the signal, see the right signal, or act accordingly. And the consequences of that knowledge are where I think we're going to have to spend a lot of time. For example, if we saw that signal, yeah. would that necessarily be clean and clear enough for us to know that the drug was really the problem and it should be withdrawn? Would it mean a different monitoring program should be put in to follow it more closely in a way that would help us learn? Would it mean that a new kind of trial, a new prospective randomized trial might be needed in that right. setting? I want to just make that point that it's easy always. It's a little bit like my own career story. All the pieces fit together in a way that makes perfect sense now. But Yeah, in the, the heat of the moment. Well, but who knows what other paths and turns one could take. That's always true. I actually think that that works here, too. So all the, or let me say, a first step in having a discussion about big data is not to start by assuming that it's the magic answer to all of our problems. Instead, I would just suggest having access to that data is better than not having access to it than total ignorance. So what, and CancerLink itself is, I mean, it, it is data that ASCO is facilitating to collect, which comes from integrated EHRs across many, many healthcare systems. Is that accurate? It's, it, I guess it is, but let me just yeah. clarify it a little more. Uh, if we had a single set of data storage sand standards in the United States, and that forced optimal connectivity. And what I mean by that is this. These are facile examples, um, but they illuminate a real problem. You and I can take a bank card and slip it into virtually any ATM right. in any corner of the earth. And those systems, that bank card will be read, it'll be targeted back to your account in Portland, Oregon, and if you withdraw 20,000 rupees or whatever you do, it will, that transaction happens. Right. Those systems are woven together 
and interconnected. And you and I, as end users, don't have to do anything except get to an English screen or speak the local language. Now, in contrast, as we all know too well, the EMR system, the, the health record system, doesn't reach that level. And there are all kinds of reasons that it doesn't. But I, uh, I'm walking you through this to make a point. If it worked the way you imagine it should work, we would not have had to build this part of CancerLink. So CancerLink was constructed to s- draw in data from our n- original aspiration, any electronic record system. I want to talk for a moment about what that means technically. The data exists, I'm oversimplifying, in standard tabular form, although not with the same language, mm-hmm. and of course in prose and images, mm-hmm. including PDFs of lots of important documents. Right. So-called free text data, right? Free text is one thing. Yeah. Then there are images of people's free text. Right, which are need to be auto-character recognized and all uh, this. Yeah, good luck yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. So we, okay. you know, the challenge is daunting. Um, so the first is, uh, here's one of my favorite examples. I use this all the time. Maybe it'll shock you, maybe it won't. But a year and a half ago, and it's, maybe it's changed for now, just in the roughly 13 or 14 electronic healthcare systems we interface with. I see. Just then in the probably 20 to 30 practices, whatever we were up to then, we're around 50 now. Um, there were 60, 60 different ways that the term white blood cell was recorded i don't mean in the free text yeah you mean i mean in, in, in the standard labular lab yeah. reports yeah so what that means is that this project that we're very quick to describe as oh we just draw in all the data has required the c- construction the writing of thousands of lines of code I, an estimate again about two years ago a year and a half ago was eighty thousand. i haven't asked lately what we're up to every time an ehr is patched or updated, there is the risk that one or all or some of our lines of code might be broken and our download will have to be repaired, meaning we'll have to fix that connection. The way CancelLink works is there's first an initial download from the record system and then a daily update. That's basically the system right now. With that, we are currently at... um, well, we're building towards a million records from, I think, around 50 practices. By the way, a practice is you know, one office with a doc or two. A practice could be 30 sites in two states. I see. A yeah. practice is just the business unit. Um, we are in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, and that allows me to make this point already. The CancerLink data set looks like America. Mm, it has a good. matching demographic. That's it is good. not driven by a reliance on only community practice or only tertiary care centers. Right. It's the gamut. And we're beginning to get um, really interesting uh, results and output from it. Remembering this, it ends with a big Q because the primary purpose to, for, for us as a nonprofit professional society standing up this expensive business was to help our members deliver higher quality care. The vision, not achieved yet, Mm -hmm. is that it will facilitate easier measurement of our quality measures, Mm -hmm. meaning our metrics, providing docs with tools to intervene and do better, allowing them to file the various quality reporting that they have to do more easily. Um, and, and, And later, using this data, one can easily imagine 
targeted educational offerings and support for people. I could see that, you know, Dr. Smith is frequently missing a certain intervention and start to provide targeted educational content. That's the dream. That is the noble reason that we went into this um, so I, was, effort. I think it's interesting because you can contrast your effort with um, or com- compare contrast with something like Flatiron yeah. where they have utilized a lot of human beings to extract this information oh. not through code but also code no no it's the same actually so, uh-huh. so let's be clear yeah. the code <laughs> the code is simply how we import all of that yeah. we still have to do the exact same thing as everybody else who wants to get value out of this which is curate but also, but my understanding is that Flatiron, they actually are going through free text notes and extracting out information. So are we. You're doing the two? Same thing. There I was see. no shortcut. And then I was also looking through some, Flatiron has filed patents for some of the mechanisms by which, but has ASCO, ASCO's, you, you write your own proprietary software on this? So, so yeah. I described to you how we import the data. Yeah. Um, as you may or may not realize, um, recognizing that this was an unbelievable challenge, we established a pretty unusual, if not unique, collaboration with Tempest and with um, now Concerta um, Precision Health. I see. And they provide the curation services as well as a licensing fee, and they turn and face the commercial markets. I want to be very clear about this. We can't afford to do this without some infusion of meaningful uh, revenue, mm-hmm. and um, that's the way to do it. And and in that regard, um, y- you know, in a sense, when I look at Flatiron from the outside, yeah. they're in a similar space. Some of the paths and, and choices they've made are different. Um, they are far more capitalized, obviously, than yeah. we could ever dream of. Yeah. Um, but we have um, certain differences that I think could be valuable as well. Uh, what I'm driving at here, though, is fundamentally, no matter where you are in this, if you want to get any benefits and value out of this in 2019, you have to be curating, and that's a very big expense, whether it's us or Flatiron. I will use this, though, to make a point. One of the fascinating um, opportunities that our current president, Monica Bertignoli, recognized, and she got this because of her leadership in the cooperative groups, was the need to standardize some of this underlying code. Mm, and okay. we have a project, a multi-stakeholder project called M-Code that we're participating in and helping to, 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 to support. Um, that stands for Minimum Common Oncology Data Elements. Yeah. And the concept is don't try to boil the ocean. Don't say that you're going to standardize the entire medical record in one fell swoop, because that's clearly not possible. But Bye. what we're going to do with collaborators is establish the um, way that certain core elements are recorded. And our hope is that we will build um, momentum into the community so that the record, medical record companies pick this up and yeah. start to roll it out. That's it's the only o- ultimate solution. It is, but it's, yeah. and, and, and uh, just to take it to the last step, it's a little bit like, and I'm sure I've got this all wrong, this analogy, but USB. Yeah. Nobody owns the USB standard exactly. It's created collaboratively by all the interested companies because they all benefit from your USB stick working universally. Yes. That's what M-Code is in our mind in, in a sense. So if we can get this out there and start to r- deploy it, um, 
everybody wins. Yeah, I think that's the the ultimate solution for the EHR. Well, and the idea yeah. for us is, in the long term, it should reduce tremendously the uh, need for curation. And I think um, the other point that you make that is, I think, the key point, which is that like any tool, this is a sword that can be wielded in whatever way, you know, for good and for bad purposes. And the key is to have the wisdom to know how to wield these observational data sets. Yeah, I come back to where I started with, with you. I think the first question has to be not are these perfection, do they answer all the problems we face, but rather is a world without this data better than a world with this data? I think that it's a net. I think we have to have this data. Your your ASCO is right to collect the data. There's, it's unthinkable not to collect it. The question is, how to use it best. That's right. Yeah. How do we responsibly gather it, analyze it, and interpret it for good? How do we recognize its limits and its benefits and use it appropriately? So um, I could give you some examples. Yeah. Um, and uh, this will be a little facile again, and, and it probably segues us to taper. Yeah, that's right. But a low-risk issue is label extension. And it's a low-risk issue because the history, at least under the current regulatory framework, is that the label for a drug in the United States is not meant to define its practice use. It is meant to define its marketing. That's just a fact. We may not like that. We may want the FDA's role to be something other than that, but that's what it is. So in that world, where the FDA actually expects off-label use, not as a pejorative term, right. but as routine matter practice, that's a place where if you've got randomized high-level evidence that got you over the line for approval. For that initial approval. And then you have a random small population, you start to see some You're thinking possible. about the Ibrance men. Well, that's the first example, yeah, yeah. But, but we were thinking about this obviously long before. It seems to me to be a very low risk kind of intervention. Men are getting the drug with or without the label. If you know something about it and you have a reasonable degree of confidence that they're not very different from women and you have a few hundred or a thousand, I don't know what's in the yeah. data set, yeah. that's an example. And there are a couple of others like that. But it, at the same instant, I would point out, this is not how you get a new drug across the line yeah. and it can't be actually for lots of reasons for lots of reasons yeah right so so and there are probably many other examples another example by the way we don't talk much about but in the device um, world where in some ways the market access is a whole lot easier the ability to provide surveillance through these kinds of tools could be really critical yeah uh, natural registries, for example, rather than purpose-built ones, could be constructed. There are any number of ways in which this could allow us to be a little more efficient, a little better informed. And I say all this taking great pains not to overpromise or overstate the value of this. Let's talk about taper. Yeah. So then I guess that the taper is ASCO's effort to capture data on the real-world utilization of targeted therapies uh, based on the increasing plethora of genome studies that you can be getting from from uh, circulating cell-free DNA studies to uh, H&E, paraffin-embedded tissue studies. Is that fair to say? Yeah, but, you know, you take the world as you find it. So what we find couple of years ago, and this was Rich Shilsky's brainchild, mm -hmm. it's, it's brilliant, um, is a world in which a test 
or a family of a, a category of testing, NGS, is being widely performed. That's just a fact. Whether that's right or wrong is a discussion for another day. Hmm. It's reality. Yeah. The next step is, hearkening back to the label, there are an increasing number of targeted therapies that on paper should be appropriate for the NGS alterations that are being found. But they have histology-specific approvals. Now, let's be honest here. In the old days, when drug prices weren't so high, the off-label use of, the, of drugs like that would be unnoticed. And indeed, we were talking about my career before, most of the chemotherapy that most of us used for most diseases was off-label all That's through true. our careers. That's what was expected. Right. And, and I want to make a point here. There's a little bit of moralism sometimes creeps into this. It is not immoral to give drugs off-label. The people who have made this into an issue are the payers, not the regulators. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and But I think that, I mean, you're right to note that, like, this was a system where it evolved for a reason. It evolved at a time where the average cost of no, anti-cancer drugs are $100 per cost month. Cost wasn't part it, of it. Cost wasn't part of it, right. So and in, in a system where cost wasn't part of it, it cut both ways. Both the payers didn't notice the payment, but also the incentive to pursue additional indications was low. I'm pushing a little harder on this. There really was not ever an intention for the FDA approval to restrict access, period. It just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And using it for that purpose is okay if we all agree on that, but it's a change and it isn't what's encoded in the regulatory authority. And also let's acknowledge it is driven by cost. It is not driven by science. It's not driven by worries about patient harm or benefit. It's driven by cost. Mm -hmm. And you can decide what should be true. You can talk about what you want to be true. We can all do that. But I'm just trying to explain how we got into this okay. position. Yeah. Um, so now you've got docs who want to give what are very expensive drugs. Right. And by the way, often they've been approved in pretty narrow indications. Right. And that also suggests that maybe we don't know everything about their safety because there could be other right. aspects to this. So there are a couple things left to do at that point. You can have, a, again, a little bit of Wild West, right? You right. Chaos, people fighting making arguments, writing letters, getting this, or you could try to organize this into a new kind of study, and that's what Rich did. These drugs in taper are all marketed. Mm -hmm. They are in the commercial marketplace, but they're all off-label here. And essentially, each specific molecular alteration coupled with a specific histology or sometimes set of histologies represents a cohort. Mm -hmm. And for that cohort, a drug is given, and if there is no activity in a modest number of people, it's a two-stage Simon design, yeah. um, then uh, the study, the, that cohort is declared inactive, and yeah. we can shut it down. So let's just pause for a moment and recognize that that's a big contribution to public health. People shouldn't be doing things that don't work even if they make sense, meaning even if they should work. And I, and I guess I want to echo that because I think that's a great contribution because without this system, what would happen might be, worst case scenario, lots and lots of people prescribe this drug off-label, but no one's talking to each other, no one funnels that information back, and then the next, the 47th person is getting the drug, exactly. the 48th person, and now at least you're gonna say it's gonna be you know 30 people, whatever, depending on what the two-stage the two stage design gets you to, and after that we're done and we're not gonna that's do this. That's right. right, so the first reports that have yeah. come out actually were Closures and two yeah. cohorts were described, I think, at, at ACR just a few weeks ago. Yeah. 
The flip side, of course, is if there's a signal of activity, that doesn't mean it's good enough. That doesn't mean you should do it. Right. It means it's worthy of some more attention. Fair so enough. the study expands, and then a more precise point estimate is generated, and that could lead you to a couple of outcomes. One, a company might decide it's worth the investment to actually conduct a formal prospective study, either yeah. another phase two or maybe a phase three in certain circumstances, right. whatever. Right. Two. In low-risk situations, maybe like the palbocyclob example, right. the FDA might look at that and say, that's good enough for us. Mm -hmm. We now have a prospective study in a modest number of patients. The drug's out there. We have all the safety experience we need from 10,000 people before. Mm -hmm. We can label it for this 1% cohort. I don't know. So anyway, that's the, that's the, the, the idea for taper. And what you will see at the certainly at the next ASCO, is a number of, of results. I the see. one thing I think that is coming as a, well, it depends where you sit on the spectrum of optimist, pessimist, or believer, non-believer, um, but there is a lot more signal of activity, I think, than pessimists would have thought going into this. Okay, oh, that, and I see. Uh, I think that... That doesn't mean, uh, you know, just think about it for a minute. I always, often think about the PARP inhibitors in breast cancer. Sure. In the end, they are, um, as a as a general rule, well tolerated drugs, and they're clearly active, but demonstrating a clear superiority over cisplatin, for example, yeah. has been a little bit of a yeah. mixed bag challenge. Yeah. So what you call worthy or success here yeah. gets very interesting. You might objectively find you're talking about triple negative breast cancer. Yeah. 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 But I'm making a different point, yeah. which is. Yeah. You could have an exciting new drug that's expensive, and it might deliver on paper the same response rate, the same progression-free interval, and the same overall survival as a cheap old drug. But you might have very good reason to still want to use that new drug. It could be oral. It could have no alopecia. Mm -hmm. It could have no mm -hmm. neutropenia. I mean, these are real examples. And how you weigh that, I think, in the long run is part of this discussion. All the taper does yeah. is provides more data points for some of these drug target combinations outside of where the companies have gotten their label. A couple of weaknesses to point out. It doesn't get you data on unmarketed drugs. Mm -hmm. Doesn't get you um, the same precision, and I think this cuts both ways, as typically seen in trials. You know, A nuance with taper is it's not just um, marketed drugs, it's also very simple eligibility criteria. What do you mean it doesn't get you data on marketed drugs? So you don't look at the approved indications, for instance. Right. I see. Right. And it, that's a conscious decision not to look but at. But also, it doesn't get you the tight cohorts of what I meant by in marketed drugs right. where, right. It's like a you know, every, formal you know, phase two. Right. Yeah. You, you know, 1.1 on the uh, creatinine cuts you off and yeah. all this. Yeah. This is real world in a couple of ways. It's interesting. Um, the age goes down to 12. There's no upper limit of age. Um, the... Organ function limits are a whole lot looser. Yeah. The follow-up is much looser right. um, in the sense that... It mirrors the real world. It does. And, yeah. and you know, this is not a bad thing because in the end, you, you could say, and, and some have argued for this, either the doc thinks the patient's benefiting and leaves them on the drug or they stop it, and that date alone is maybe all you really would need in the, the real world. The duration of treatment yeah. rather than the duration of response. Yeah. Anyway, it's, I'm, yeah. not, no. I'm not arguing for that at all. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, but it's just interesting. So this is a new kind of study, even though it's prospective. It fills a previously uh, um, 
I'd say, unrecognized niche, and it does it in a creative new way. Brain metastases are allowed onto the study. That's good, yeah. Lines of therapy are open. HIV, with rare exceptions, and so on. We hope, by the way, and it relates to a project Julie Vose did when she was president of ASCO on liberalizing eligibility criteria so that more patients could actually participate in studies, mm -hmm. which itself is a goal, yeah. but it's also so that what we learn in trials more accurately reflects what goes on in the real world. Right, has external validity. Yeah. You know, I guess um, I see, for instance, in the last maybe three weeks, we have an approval in bladder cancer in a subsequent line of therapy. I'm thinking, is it second or third? I, I forget, but for an FGFR inhibitor. Yeah. And when you see, this is, to my knowledge, the first FGFR inhibitor that's coming to the market. We know that drug is gonna get used in that small group, but it's also got potential to be used in a wide variety of tumor types for which FGFR mutations have long been recognized, thought to be important. This is this is the spot that Taper will hit. Yes. Yeah. And so, exactly what we wanted. So, you know, Taper could go on for a long time. Yeah. It's really a rolling machine. Cohorts can open and close. Um, and, and Do patients have, um, the, if a physician is putting a patient on a Taper study, they, they have a discussion with the patient before and it's like a protocol? Or? It is a research protocol. Okay. What's different about yeah. it, what makes it efficient is this. And this sidesteps a controversial issue. You don't enroll and then do your testing. So the cohort of people who go into taper are pre-selected, not for performance status exactly, or the things that you think would bias traditionally, right. but rather they're really pre-selected for obviously being treatable mm -hmm. and for already being tested. So you don't test them while the disease progresses and then discover that they've gotten sick and they can't go on. Right. In fact, the doc signed them up with a pretty high level of confidence that they're going to be matched and treated in this study. And how many patients are on the study so far? Oh, the last I heard, I think it's around 1,600, but it's oh, wow. growing. Yeah. Okay. It's been a, it's been a, a truly, and it's, I can't say enough um, good things about uh, Rich Shilsky and the team he's built within ASCO to conduct this. When Rich started at ASCO, mm -hmm. he didn't have any direct reports, uh -huh. and he was a chief medical officer um, with no um, uh, direct, uh, no yeah. employees to to worry about. And I think he liked it a lot. And now what he's got <laughs> is we have established Centra, which is our center for um, uh, research and an analysis, which he runs, and it offers access to cancer-linked data sets, various Centra other data sets and conducts the taper trial. Yeah. And so he's got the whole little, uh, whole growing world there uh, and real mark success to talk about. Yeah, I think um, it's it's an effort to be commended because it's necessary, it fills that gap. And uh, I'd be, I'll be, I'm gonna be very curious to read the results when I see this year's ASCO. Well, you'll start to see them. Uh, again, in the, in the spirit of, of getting this right, yeah. um, what taper will show you is the possibility that some of these matches should be studied more. further, right? And I think that that's important to recognize that uh, taper is is probably primarily capturing activity response rate. It's not the be all end all about efficacy, which is better than other alternatives. But it's something to without without activity, many of us their enthusiasm is low. Well, I don't want to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but mm -hmm. I can easily envision circumstances where the taper data alone should be enough to change practice. A safe, widely used drug, one more small niche indication or expanding it to a pediatric I mean. population or expanding it to brain metastasis. Something like that, uh -huh. yeah. Uh, on the flip side, uh -huh. I can also imagine lots of circumstances where the right use of it is to hunker down and do a real yeah, formal real study. study. Yep. Well, uh, any uh, any other topics you want to hit on before we... No, this is great. I mean, um, for me, I mean, uh, yeah. don't, just don't use it all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we might use it all. But, no, no, um, it's too long. 
No, that's that's the one thing that I've learned about podcasting, which is that um, there are a lot of people out there who say they want 15, 20 minute podcasts. You probably, you guys have done, probably surveyed what people want from a podcast. But when I look at the usage statistics, I feel like there's two groups of people out there. There are people who, even if it were short and sweet, they're just not going to listen to podcasts. And there's this other group of people that are insatiable. They'll listen to, if I put out nine hours a week, they'll listen to it all. I don't know who they are or what their day jobs are, uh, but, but, no. they, but they're very interested. Well, I would, if, if you, on the podcast record, yeah. wanted um, a closing comment from me, yes. I would want to say one thing. One of the things that I would hope anybody listening to this gets is the excitement, enthusiasm, promise, and optimism that is oncology in 2019. Every part of it, um, in terms of the outcomes for patients, is or can be better today than it was when I started in this field. And I think we're still in the early days. Um, the controversies, the arguments, the healthy debate that we have in our field and the challenges that we face, I think are, are good. It is a little bit too easy sometimes for people to get lost in the and not see the big picture. Falling death rates from cancer, mm -hmm. much more reason for hope and some great things on the horizon. So what I, you know, thinking about the fact that we were talking to trainees and early career people, what I hope people realize is that they're dedicating their lives to one of the most important things you can do, dealing with one of the most pressing human problems. A problem, by the way, that is going to explode globally yeah. in the coming decades because of the creation of wealth and growing middle classes around yeah. the world. One of my favorite topics as well. And I think that we at ASCO and all of us, whether in ASCO or not, have both an obligation and an opportunity right now to shape this world and help people, millions of people that will never see ourselves. And that's what I think uh, you asked me at one point, you know, what is the role of the professional society? It is no less than that. Uh, I think that's so well said. I, and I guess I'd say I, I cannot agree with you more that of all the things one can choose to focus on and pursue, this is um, certainly among the most richest and important things. Um, y you, you really get everything from getting to think more about statistics and trial design, getting to try to become better at being a consummate clinician and being ha able to be a good communicator with patients. And I, and I really liked what you said earlier, which is that uh, you're not going to be right about everything. And um, I think that's just a good point, which is to recognize that there are some things you're going to be right about and some things you're going to be wrong about, and trying to figure out those two uh, will definitely keep you going. Well, I think that it's a mistake to view it as jousting. Mm. Really, all of us in this field are here to help people. I think that's that's absolutely right, and um, and where we where we uh, do have healthy debate, it's only because what we we disagree what that means. But yeah, but that's the that's the only friction. It's not the goal. The debate's useful. Yeah, that's not the point. The point is to just for all of us to keep in mind. I think that that you know ultimately, we all have a Mr. Smith and a Ms. Jones and their kid mm -hmm. in a clinic on Thursday afternoon, and yeah. we're trying to help. Dr. Hattis, thank you so much for coming here and taking time out of your busy schedule uh, and joining us on Plenary Session. I like to say it's a lot like the ASCO Plenary, but uh, we have an even bigger audience than, uh, than the ASCO Plenary. Do you think? No, I think you'll probably <laughs> still edge us out, but someday. Well, thanks for coming on. Sure.
you've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.